like an animal, talks like an animal, must be an animal, come here the animal, talking animal, talking animal. morning. This is Talking Animals on WMNF. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest this morning is Sam Anderson, a staff writer for the New York Times Magazine. His latest story, published in last Sunday's magazine, the cover story, by the way, is the last two northern white rhinos on Earth an account of the week Anderson spent in Kenya with the only two northern white rhinos still alive, Najin and her daughter Fatu. But that description doesn't begin to address what a singular piece this is. A deeply reported and beautifully written article chronicling the dire circumstance of an important species so threatened that barring a miraculous development it's just now two animals away from total extinction this is also something of a love story anderson falls hard for what he refers to as the girls doesn't pretend for a moment otherwise and finds himself wanting to spend every possible moment with them there's more and it all adds up to something distinctive and powerfully poignant of the nearly 400 readers who commented online about anderson's article before they turned off comments a huge number mentioned being moved to tears I also consider the piece a true tonic for crushed souls and broken hearts in the wake of last Wednesday's horrific events. We'll discuss his story, his rhino friends, and more when I speak with Sam Anderson in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Before I mention the other guests on today's show, I'd like to remind you that two weeks from today, January 27th, we'll be raising money for WMNF on Talking Animals. I hope I can ask you to make a donation early to get a head start on our fundraising goal. How about right now, in fact? And fear not, as is always true for Talking Animals, we have some exclusive things. Thank you gifts, ones you can only get for pledging and support of Talking Animals and WMNF. You can get the lowdown on these thank you gifts and fast, easy ways to pledge by visiting TalkingAnimals.net. But as a sneak preview, they include a week's stay in a newly remodeled Kauai condo, a fantastic setup at a discounted price, books by recent guests Carl Safina and Jeffrey Mason, signed by the authors, CDs featuring all dog songs by Nashville singer-songwriters, amazing pet hair-removing gizmos, and more. To help me get a head start on my fundraising goal, you can go online to WMNF.org and donate via the tip jar. Please be sure to indicate your donation is intended for Talking Animals. If you'd like to make arrangements to pledge for a specific Talking Animals gift, please email me at duncan at wmnf.org. Meanwhile, later in this show, I'll speak with H.H. German, founder of Sigma Comics and the writer-creator of Calico, what may be the first comic book hero dedicated to fighting animal abuse. The first issue of what German expects will be an eight-issue series was recently published, and let's just say you don't want to mistreat animals on Calico's watch. I'll talk with H.H. German later in today's program. Right now, though, let's talk rhinos, some very specific rhinos, with Sam, with a reminder that I invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing DJ at WMNF.org texting 813-433-0885 This is Sam Anderson 
on Talking Animals on WMNF. Good morning, Sam. Hey, good morning. Thank you so much for having me on. Uh, thanks so much for kind introduction. I love to think of uh, my writing as a tonic for, what'd you say, crushed souls? Well, yeah, partly, well, we'll get into this maybe later, but maybe we'll get into it now because we're already here. But uh, the story, of course, ran in Sunday's Times Magazine, as I mentioned, the cover story. But as often happens, of course, these days, it went online a number of days before that. And I think it went online Wednesday. So I know that for a lot of people who did comment on it, they read it that day or the next day or two. And I think for them, it really was a tonic because of what had happened Wednesday afternoon and evening. So I think there were some crushed souls and broken hearts that were, your story was kind of a bomb for them, as uh, as many of those oh. comments make clear. So anyways, but that's by way of saying, if I didn't already make it clear in the introduction, that I can't recommend this story highly enough. If you haven't had a chance to read it, it is online. Maybe wait till now that <laughs> after the show so you don't go away from, uh, from the conversation we're about to have about the article. So I, I guess kind of at the risk of being a dullard compared to the story itself, I want to kind of go back to the beginning of the story. How did the idea come about? What was the genesis of it? Um, it's always hard to say with these kinds of things. It's sort of like an idea drops out of this cloud of thoughts and feelings you're having in your subconscious or something. And this one was, but I remember the, the session. I was, I was just trying to brainstorm kind of big news story ideas. And I was feeling pretty down. Um, and my father was dying, actually. And I remember just thinking about kinds of stories that were about the ends of things, things, things ending. And I mm. thought, wouldn't it be interesting to write about, like, I don't know, I think the first thought that occurred to me was, like, the oldest human in the world or something like that. And then right after that, this story, I, I remembered, oh, yeah, there's this, there's this subspecies of rhinoceros that is down to its very last members that is, that is what's called functionally extinct. And I had read the news stories about Sudan, the last male northern white rhino dying in 2018. And um, so, so that's what occurred to me. And I thought, I thought, wouldn't it be fascinating not just to, from a distance, acknowledge the tragedy of that situation and then move on, but, but actually go out and stand face-to-face with the last remaining creatures and essentially write a profile of who they are, what they're like, what they do all day. Um, you know, are they boring? Are they funny? Uh, what is their relationship with each other? And treat them, I mean, because that's the whole point of being alive, right? Is that you are a fascinating thing with all kinds of complexity and you do stuff all day long. And like, that was happening all the time. And, and all we knew, all I knew as a distant Western you know, news consumer was, these species are about to be gone. These creatures are about to be gone. So I wanted to be like, well, who are they before they're gone? Can I draw a portrait of them that makes people feel their reality and who they are and what is precious there that we are losing? So that in one sense, it's happy because you're kind of reveling in these great, interesting beings. And in one sense, it's even more tragic because you suddenly understand what you're losing. So that was my idea. Go yeah. File these actual creatures. And how did you, uh, maybe similar to what you just said to me, but how did you frame this like to your editors or, or whatever, just, just that way? Like, here's kind of what I'm going through. Here's my thought. And really to do this, I need to go hang out with these rhinos. Yeah, it really was that. It was yeah. really pitching it as, as if I would pitch a celebrity profile. But it yeah. was, the celebrities were these threatened rhinos and i just want to draw the best portrait of them that i can before they're gone and they probably have much kinder publicists than most of those celebrities that you uh 
Exactly. Publicist. Yeah, really wonderful publicists who are just a pleasure to deal with. That's right. One of the things I want to talk about, like uh, maybe sort of throughout this conversation, Sam, is there's something about rhinos that speaks to people, and it spoke to you because as you lay out why the story kind of got launched the way it did, it makes total sense. But there are also a number of other animals that are in a similar status. And in fact, in your own article, you mentioned the vaquita, for example which is kind of an obscure little dolphin facing a relatively obscure march towards extinction as well. It's hard to find stories about the vaquita, and and very few advocates or organizations are beating the drum for the vaquita, apart from like Paul Watson, the Sea Shepherd, maybe a few others. So, and because I've felt the same way myself, I'm trying to figure out what it is about rhinos that that does speak to them. I mean, Sudan, who you mentioned, I think spoke to a lot of people as well. There are articles about Sudan. There's been at least one or two docs. I interviewed the um, filmmaker of a PBS doc uh, that was a part of that nature series. And I found myself thinking about Sudan all the time. And also another thing we'll come back to hopefully is thinking about Sudan's keepers and the same caretakers as the same way that the caretakers of these two women are sort of pivotal parts of your story. But now or then, did you come up with what it is about rhinos that does seem to really more profoundly connect with people so that there might have been other versions of that story you could have pitched, but that's what appealed to you. That's where you said, hey, here's what I want to do and here's how I want to present kind of the end of a species by selecting these rhinos. Yeah, such a good question because that's that's really one of the crucial issues and something I try to get to in my piece, as you say, is like, I mean, often we use the word charismatic, right? It's like these charismatic creatures that are endangered get all the attention um, as opposed to the many insects that kind of hold our, our world together and our ecosystems together that people just can't make themselves care about. Um, and so, yeah, there is that. I mean, I mean, rhinos, Rhinos have a special place, I think, in human history just because there's something about them. They're so big um, and they're so, quote unquote, exotic mm-hmm. Western yeah. people. And they always have been. I did a lot of reading about the history history of rhinos and people's relationship to rhinos. And they've always been these objects of fetish to um, Europeans, uh, you know, uh, Western Hemisphere people because we don't have them around. I mean, they used to live everywhere, but, but we don't have them anymore. So we don't see them, and they're these gigantic creatures, and they have these horns that are unlike on their noses, which is unlike any any other creature you'll ever see. And in fact, rhinos are the origin of unicorns. Um, it was these far-off reports from traveling Europeans uh, that gave birth to the unicorn myth, and they were just seeing rhinos. And um, rhino horns have been you know, given all these magical properties through time. And um, so I think that's, that's their appeal. And then you get near them. And so I wanted to kind of bust through that mythology. That was part of wanting to just stand next to them for as long as I could. Yeah. And you get near them and realize they're just, they're just big old mammals, but essentially just like your pet dog. You know, I, I think of the girls, which is what everyone calls the last two. Um, I think of the girls most often, I think, in my daily life, when I'm talking to my dog, I have a big dog named Pistachio, big, <laughs> big scraggly dog. And when I'm talking to Pistachio, I am speaking in the voice that the caretakers use to speak to the rhinos. And he's reacting in many of the same ways. And it's that the very similar sort of just mammal to mammal bond that you feel when you're near them. They're not exotic at all. Oh, the other myth that they're kind of behind is we think of them as dinosaurs. We think of them as kind yeah. of historic holdovers. And that's partly because, which this is fascinating, it's partly because scientists, when 
the dinosaur fossils were discovered, were groping for a way to visualize them for modern humans. And they chose rhinos because rhinos kind of seemed to fit the bill. And so when we look at a rhino and see a dinosaur, that's because paleontologists and the artists who made these drawings used rhinos as models for the visual of dinosaurs, even though they're not related in any way. Yeah. So there's this kind of feedback loop of exoticization. Um, yeah, so, so that's, why I think, that's why I think rhinos are so weird and fascinating. And they're so big. Yeah, and and it is interesting because you mentioned charisma, and again, they are striking looking, but uh, I wouldn't say they necessarily have like movie star good looks compared to a lot of other animals that we think of as charismatic, and yet, again, they're super compelling as we've already kind of uh, established, and, and that's um, among the things, of course, that drew you to, to doing this profile. So there's just something very, I mean, some of it, I guess, is just what we've talked about, and some of it is an intangible because I think there's a lot of people, especially if they haven't had the opportunity to, to, to hang out with rhinos the way you have, that still feel like a some kind of magical connection to them that they might not be able to explain. I, I'm probably in that boat myself. Uh, and again, I really, like I said, found that with Sudan. And um, yeah, there's just uh, something. But that's sort of in the abstract. But, but you actually met them, uh, Najin and Fatu, in person. And that was clearly a magical experience, and it appears that almost immediately you were smitten. Mm -hmm. So talk a little bit about that initial encounter and then just kind of how quickly you felt like, wow, I just want to, as much time as I'm over here, I just want to, like, hang with them. Yeah, I mean, you're right. It was immediate. Um, so, you know, I fly to Kenya. It's a long flight to Nairobi. And then and then from Nairobi, you take kind of a bush plane up into the mountains and then take an hour-long car ride. And then suddenly you're out in the middle of this... Um, Wildlife Conservancy and uh, going through all these this, this series of clanking gates and suddenly you're out in this field and it's just a big wide hundred acre field and that's where the girls spend their days and they're out grazing and once they see the caretakers coming with a visitor in a truck they, they know the treat buckets are probably coming out so they come trotting over toward us and uh, just to see them move I mean you're right. There's something magic about it. There's something so strange and compelling about it to see that that big a creature moving so easily, trotting across this field, and then coming to just munch on some oats and carrots, and uh, and just calmly walking around near me. And they're just again the size comes into play. They're just such a different scale of animal. That and they, did I lose you for a second? Uh, yes, yeah, uh, I thought you dropped out, but luckily we're, we're in good shape. Good. They've uh, got this rough, thick skin, um, these big snouts that they can just press flat against the grass. They're sometimes called grass rhinos. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're really nature's perfect grass munching machine. And uh, so they got these big, boxy, weird snouts that wiggle whenever they move around. And it, it's, it's just really adorable. And so really right away, standing near them, I felt this kind of, I don't know, like gravity inside me attaching to them. And I just wanted to watch them do what they do all the time, uh, every day. And so I would stay with them out in the fields pretty much from dawn to dusk when they went back into their pens and then uh, go back to my tent and sleep the night off and head back as the sun rose to watch them wake up again. Yeah, so it was really clear that, hey, okay, well, if they're in their pens, I guess I can't hang with them, but uh, <laughs> yeah. as, as much as I can, I am going to hang with them whenever that opportunity exists. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, 
Uh, this is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. If you just tuned in, my guest is Sam Anderson, a staff writer for the New York Times Magazine, whose latest story published in last Sunday's magazine is The Last Two Northern White Rhinos on Earth, which is partly an account of the week Anderson spent in Kenya with the only two northern white rhinos still alive, Najin and her daughter Fatu. But the story, as I think we're establishing here, is far more than that, an emotionally powerful piece about many, many things. And if you'd like to ask Sam a question or offer a comment, please call 813-239-966. Email DJ at WMNF.org or text 813-433-0885. So one thing that I guess this probably came a few days into your visit, but it sort of was part of what I think you're describing here. There was kind of an undeniable sense of intimacy that seemed to accompany your recounting, giving Najin her scratches. I guess at one point you had a chance to really, uh, and it sounded like that was... uh, well, I guess for for both sides of the equation, kind of a profound moment. Yeah, I mean, for her, I think it was just a pleasant uh, a pleasant morning scratch down. For me, it was pretty profound. Um, but they, the Najin and Fatu, have this really beautiful relationship with their caretakers. It was this this small team of Kenyan men who uh, watched them in shifts and um, who have again the relationship you might have with a big weird pet dog uh, that weighs four thousand pounds and has a couple of horns on its nose. And so they trot out in the morning and, and uh, stand in the rising sun, kind of warming up, and the caretaker will often give them a, a thorough scratch down, which the girls stand. I mean, especially Najin, the mom, who's the more, more mellow of the two, uh, will stand and just kind of lean her body into them as they scratch her skin and, and kneel down and pat her belly. And it's really wonderful. I put a video of it up on my Twitter feed. Um, for people to see, it's just it's just one of the most adorable things you'll ever see. And uh, again, it's as simple and as deep as you know you petting your dog. Yeah. One one morning, uh, one of the caretakers, Jojo, uh, invited me to step in because Najin wasn't done getting scratched, and he was done scratching her. And he said, "Why don't you give it a, a shot?" So I stepped over and kind of gingerly, because I I mean, it's kind of scary to stand that close to something that big, but sure. but I scratched her down and uh, she was leaning into me and I stopped eventually and she t- swung her big giant head with her horn right over toward me and he said, oh, that means she wants more. So I scratched her down some more and yeah, it was just a, just a beautiful, simple, very like mammalian uh, experience, you know? Yeah, but it really does, sounds like just that particular moment. It's one thing to hang out with them and watch them and be really struck by them, but it's another thing to really have that tactile uh, connection, and um, mm-hmm. it seems like that was yeah really really powerful. And can you talk a bit more about the girls' caretakers? Because one of the things that really was clear is, uh, and this you know I remember this too from the Sudan story is just there's this undeniable um, kind of emotional center that goes with the devotion of these caretakers and the kind of sacrifices they made in their lives, their family lives, etc. Just to mm-hmm really, really be able to look after these rhinos in the best way possible. Can you uh, talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. devotion is the perfect word, actually. Uh, they do, they live this kind of monkish existence out in the bush in the middle of this conservancy um, in this cluster of little round huts. They each have kind of their own their own little tiny living quarters. You know, they, they live on pretty meager rations that they cook for themselves, and they spend all their days with the girls, making sure the girls are feeling well and um, 
that no one tries to hurt them. And um, they're, uh, I was just endlessly impressed by these guys. I mean, the job does not pay well. The job does not actually have a lot of clout in Kenya, which is surprising. I think as Westerners, we think, wow, what a glorious job to be the caretaker of these precious creatures. But um, in Kenya, I think they're fairly low on the social hierarchy. Um, and they have this really soul, soulful relationship with the girls. Um, they're kind of their own little society of people all to themselves, the caretakers. I mean, they're all they're from all over Kenya. They speak all these different languages. Um, and they've all got the most incredible stories of life in the bush. I mean, they've all they've all worked um, various jobs out in the bush, and they've all been, you know, this, this is the most hair-raising stories of being attacked by lions and, uh, you know, waking up and there's a, there's a baboon inside of your, uh, in your little hut where you're sleeping because you accidentally left the door cracked. Mm. A baboon confined with a human in, the, in a small space will very likely kill the human. So getting out of that situation, uh, there's all kinds of incredible stories. So I had such a good time just standing with them for hours and hours out in the field talking about the girls, but also talking about their lives and, and the sacrifices they made. I mean, they all live far away from their families. And so when they get a week off, which is rare, they have to travel across Kenya to get back to their families who they haven't seen in weeks and weeks and weeks, uh, you know. Yeah. All for the girls. Yeah, well, that's the thing. thing. Yeah, it, there really are significant sacrifices, it's clear. And as you noted, I mean, there really isn't that much money in it. There's not much status in it. But they obviously just love the the animals so much that it's uh, it's worth it to them to, to make those sacrifices and uh, just spend their lives uh, in, in that way where, yeah, periodically they'll see their family, but not much more than that. So, and you also note that the the caretakers uh, told you, I guess, that sometimes they dream about the girls. Um, yeah. I'm curious, given how uh, again profound an experience you had, do you have you found yourself dreaming about them since uh, since you uh, visit there? That's a great question. I disappointingly, I never have hmm. about the girls. I think about them all day long, but then at night I fall asleep and have my normal anxiety dreams about other things. So I would love to. I mean, yeah. these guys have dreams where, like, you know, Sudan, before he died, or even after he died, I think, would come to them and, and speak to them and, in uh, English and Swahili. And I remember asking them, like, does his mouth move in the dream? They're like, yeah, it's like a movie when an animal, like a CGI animal talks. His mouth is moving. And then he, you know, he'll, they'll climb on his back and he'll, like, fly them to distant countries and stuff. So I want some of those dreams. Wow. Happen yet. Maybe they're coming. Maybe they're coming. Because yeah. the story really suggests, among many, many, many things, a man transformed by going there. I mean, what ways would you say that reporting and writing a story did change you? I would say it, it actually reinforced really powerfully something that I've felt for a long time. I've my earliest memories as a kid are of just loving animals, just adoring animals. And I remember growing up and feeling conflicted about eating meat because those were animals and I loved animals. I wanted to be a vet or, or a zoologist when I was a little kid. Mm. And um, I talk a lot about love in the piece and how, you know, we love the things around us, but we, it's very hard for us to extend that love a long way away um, to distant creatures who we've never met. And I remember when... When I got, I got this really wonderful wiener dog when I was about 20 years old named Moby. And uh, I loved, I fell so deeply in love with this dog that that love 
that I felt for him kind of radiated out to the whole rest of the world. And I thought, if I love this dog so much, why am I eating other animals? If I lived with a cow for six months, I bet I would fall so deeply in love with that cow that I would never, ever eat that cow. And why can't I, why do I need to have that experience before I make that decision? So I became a vegetarian then because I loved my dog so much. And so I've always had this impulse, I think, to extrapolate out the love that I feel for the creatures around me to the rest of the creatures in the world that I haven't met. Yeah. And um, so, so that was part of this journey was going to meet the rarest and most exotic creatures I had ever heard of, I think, and spend time with them and to find out, oh, it's like hanging out with my dog. Like even here, even in this uh, elevated, tragic, amazing, dramatic story, the bond is the same. The feeling of love is the same. And that, so that kind of clinched for me, I think, at the highest possible level that my earlier instincts were right, that um, we need to find a way to imaginatively project the love that we feel for the people and the creatures around us out to cover the whole planet. Uh, you know, to the Vaquita, who most of us will never, ever meet um, or even, even know about, probably, um, we need to be able to treat those things as if we did meet them, as if we did love them. So I think I think it made that feeling that I've always kind of tended toward and made it it made it even bigger and deeper for me. Wow, that's really uh, really powerful, and uh, it does speak back to my one of my first questions about uh, if there is a vaquita that is marching towards or swimming towards extinction, why? Or they're not stories about the, the vaquita compared to the stories about the rhino. But sometimes it's you, you write the story or you tell the story that you can, especially if it still hopefully has a more universal impact, which I think this one clearly does. So, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's really strong. So that, I guess that brings me to this. Given how powerful and profound your time in Kenya was with these wonderful girls, the rhinos, did you have any... Uh, Maybe fear is too strong a word, but concern that you might struggle to fully capture or represent your experience there? Oh, yeah. No, fear is not too strong a word. Okay. Not, strong, not a strong enough word, but dread, terror. Uh, absolutely. I came home um, from this experience thinking both elated because of the experience I had and how powerful it was. and. And as a writer, I knew I just had so much that was so good and also terrified that, well, now I have to I have to somehow translate that experience into lines of words on a page that can make a stranger feel some important fraction of what I felt that can kind of activate all these giant feelings I'm carrying around inside of me now, put them out into the world and make others feel those feelings so that we can maybe do something to help all the creatures in the world. And so it was this huge responsibility and pressure that I put on myself. And I thought, if I don't screw this up, this should probably be the best thing I've ever written. And once you start thinking in that in that way, it becomes very hard to actually write. So it took me over a year to actually produce, produce this piece. I mean, I went to Kenya in the summer of 2019, um, before the pandemic. Yeah. So it took me a very long time to actually come up with, with the written version that everyone can now read, which I'm really proud of. But, but yeah, it was a lot of pressure. Yeah, no, I could see how it would be. And I could also see how there'd be periodically looking up at the calendar, just like out of a movie, whatever, and the, the calendar pages are dropping down. And it's like, <laughs> you know, but the piece that resulted, I, I hope you feel is well worth 
all that time and kind of anxiety because again it's I think had a huge impact in so many ways from just the fundamental thing of educating people about that that's what the status of the northern white rhinos are but again it's about so many other things and it has so many other uh, emotional currents to it that it's that I think that's why you're getting people routinely in the comments talking about being moved to tears and, and how it affected them. So this is Talking Animals. I'm Duncan Strauss. My guest is Sam Anderson, a staff writer for the New York Times Magazine, whose latest story published in last Sunday's magazine is The Last Two Northern White Rhinos on Earth. The piece is uh, available online. And we invite you to join the conversation by calling 813-239-9663, emailing dj at wmnf.org, or texting 813-433-0885. Let's take a caller now. Hi, you're on Talking Animals with Sam Anderson. Yeah, hey, I I had already seen that article, which was really heartbreaking and poignant and scientific. And it's always that Duncan has the most intelligent guests who write about these things. And I want to say that people need to realize that the other species we share the planet with, especially mammals, but including insects, etc., they all have personalities, social culture, families, uh, hopes, fears, desires, and they're all cool people in a way. They're, it's not just that humans are the only so-called people on the planet. And most people only extend that kind of awareness and empathy to their pet animals. But if you look, even my backyard squirrels, blue jays, uh, lizards, if, if, as long as I don't intrude on them and act like the typical human, um, they, I can see that they're a lot deeper than humans give them credit for. And the way anthropogenic mass extinction is going, pretty soon you could well visit a lot of species that we think there are a lot of because they too will be disappearing. So I hope you'll make a series of these books and focus also how on here in Florida, we don't see bees and other pollinators much anymore. We don't see butterflies. Lots of species are disappearing due to humans. Thank you for what you do. Thanks for your call. Any comments there, Sam? Thank, yeah, thank you so much. I think he, he said that really beautifully. Um, yeah, I mean, about how all, all the creatures out there are cool people. I love that phrase. Yeah. Uh, in, the, in their way. Um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, we're learning so much every year about the complexity of non-human creatures on the planet. Um, I was just reading an article about squirrels that blew my mind about about their their strategic nut locations when they bury their nuts and how they do like decoy batches where they pretend to bury some nuts in case another creature is watching and then they go bury them somewhere else. And I think in you know 50 years we're going to look back uh, with a whole new and richer knowledge base and we're going to look back at this time and the last couple centuries as just such a tragic crime against the non-human world. Um, and we're going to have a lot of reckoning to do. I use the word Holocaust in my piece about, yeah. about the destruction of rhinos, which I, I think some people got angry about and, and thought that that's trivializing the term to apply it to uh, rhinoceroses, which which I disagree with completely. I mean, it's a, it's a large-scale slaughtering of beings who do have, who are sentient creatures, who do have personalities, habits, um, you know, the instinct to play, love, all that stuff. And we just killed them for absolutely no good reason on such, at such barbaric scales. So, I'm, yeah, I'm 100% with the caller on this. Yeah. And one thing the caller mentioned, which maybe on a smaller scale, I was going to ask you about myself, which is given your feelings about uh, Moby and your current feelings about pistachio and, and the piece that, that we're discussing here, do you anticipate writing more uh, animal oriented stories or do you f or as part of the job at the magazine to sort of really kind of vary the kind of pieces that you do uh, write for? Um, 
First of all, thank you for saying the names of my dogs back to me. That was just a powerful thing okay. <laughs> uh, echoed from a stranger to validate their existence in that way. Um, yeah, you know, I don't have concrete plans for it. I do tend to leap all over the place and write about all kinds of things. I wrote a big piece this year about Weird Al Yankovic. Right. I wrote a piece about the NBA bubble. And, you know, I write about a huge assortment of things. I like to think the same kind of emotional architecture sits underneath each of those. Yeah. But animals is, you know, as I hope I've made clear, is something that runs so deep in my life, my, my attachment to them, that it is something I would like to write a lot more about. I could see a series like that where you try to, you know, particularize and, and familiarize people with animals they've never thought about or cared about. Yeah. I think that's a powerful thing to do. Yeah, I think it really is. And I think for the, some of the reasons that you already outlined in terms of just the educational value to that and, and for people to assist them making connections like what you've made between Moby and other animals, pistachio and, and now rhinos. And I meant to ask you when you were talking about the way you talked to pistachio since you came back from your trip, is that different from how you spoke with pistachio before uh, spending time with the rhinos and especially their caretakers? That's a good question. Um, uh, similar in kind, but I would say there's a new intensity to it because I am, as I pet him, some percentage of that time I'm actually thinking of the, the girls, the, the rhinos mm-hmm. are in my mm-hmm. mind. And I'm, I'm just thinking how lucky I am to share this relationship with this creature and how just enjoyable it is to have a daily interaction, you know, all yeah. day long with a big fuzzy weird guy like this. And so I, I would say there's a, there's an extra like 20%, uh, of affection uh, in in my petting of pistachio now. I see. I'll sort of savor savor those moments because you know you just you imagine when they're gone. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, and Sam, how have you felt about the reader reaction to your story? It's been it's been wonderful. As you said, the the piece came out online, which these days is is, is its real kind of release date. I would say. Yeah. Of most readers, and it came out online the day of of the overrunning of the Capitol mm-hmm. the attempted coup. And so, you know, there was a bit of like, oh, well, you know, history has kind of trampled on the story that I spent more than a year writing, and who knows if, if anyone will even see it. But after the immediate crisis passed there, um, people really started to find it, and I just had a flood of really wonderful emotional emails from people a lot of people writing to me on social media, and uh, I never read the comments on a piece, but my wife does, and she summarizes them for me. And, and it sounds like exactly the kind of reaction I was hoping for. Like people have been able to, through this piece, feel a love for the last two northern white rhinos and think about what that means for all the other creatures living on Earth. And that's, yeah, I couldn't have asked for a better reaction. And sometimes serendipity can be an enormous influence. Like I could see how. If I were you and like the piece goes online Wednesday and then this set of horrors unfolds that afternoon and evening, you think, oh, my God, seriously? I mean, not uh, a your bigger concern is what was happening in D.C. In, in many respects, but still it's like what odd kind of circumstances. But the thing that really I think is true about that, which I, I think alluded to earlier, is that I think whenever people got to the story, maybe they even got to it that day, but in the, in the ensuing days, 
I think, like I said early on, I think it was, it's hard to imagine that it could have been more helpful and more soothing, uh, again, a tonic and a bomb for people who were just so upset and heartbroken and just crushed by what they had witnessed and experienced and just didn't know how to sort it out. And here was this piece that uh, was kind of a, a thing to sort of divert yourself and really have a, but still just so loaded with emotions and uh, just really kind of therapeutic as well as educational and all the other things that we've talked about. So, and in some ways I think yeah. the, the impact might've been heightened, not just by the, 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 you know, the God awful insurrection on Wednesday, but in some ways more broadly, because I think people are exhausted and depressed and stuff because of the pandemic and just all the challenges that go with that and, and other challenges too. And so I think the piece probably also helped in that way as well. So, um, I hope so. I mean, I try to approach everything I write really as with with all of my humanity as a full person, and and really let let the full emotional spectrum of the subject be out on the page. And so, I guess I kind of feel like there's no bad time to put something like that out into the world because whatever humans are up to, it will resonate with the humanity in my piece. And so, what happened at the Capitol and what's been happening in America for the last five plus years is the same stuff I'm writing about in this piece about the rhinos. I mean, it's the other side of the coin, you know, it's about the ability of us to project love outside of our most obvious immediate interests and the damage that violence does and that thoughtlessness and lovelessness does uh, inflicted on the world. And it's about taking time to like look around you with your own humanity rather than springing into action based on, I don't know, some narrow, narrow, narrow set of selfish interests. Yeah. So I think it's all the same, it's all the same stuff. Yeah. Well, we're sort of nearing the end of our time, um, Sam, but there was a line that, as you were just mentioning those things, that kind of stuck with me that I just want to read to you and then see if you want to comment or elaborate on it at all, where I think at one point you say, a rhino is not just part of the world, it is the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, a rhino is uh, it, a rhino. I mean, that I think that means a lot of different things. One yeah. of the things it means is that it's a, a rhino is a is a, a little ecosystem unto itself. Whether you're talking about the worms that live inside of it, or the flies that lay their eggs on it, or the dung beetles that depend on its huge manure piles to exist and reproduce, or the birds that come to eat the bug and the mammals that come to eat the bird and the way it clears paths through the grass for other animals to follow to find water. I mean, it does so much for its environment just by being itself. And so to remove that, uh, I think in America, we have been taught to think in a very individualistic way, like, oh yeah, we just took out this one species or this one individual creature forgetting that this creature connects to everything around it in ways that we don't even understand a lot of. Yeah. Uh, so it is a world. Well, that might be the, just the right place to leave things for today. So, Sam, thank you so much. We've been speaking with Sam Anderson, staff writer for the New York Times Magazine. Again, the piece we've been discussing is The Last Two Northern White Rhinos on Earth, which uh, thankfully is available easily online. And um, I think it might be... Uh, overstating the case now to say that I re really recommend reading it and uh, soaking it in. So, Sam, thank you so much for making the time to uh, join us today on Talking Animals. Really enjoyed it and look forward already to your uh, next piece, whatever its topic might be. <laughs> thank you so much. This was really great. Oh, great. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. All right. Bye. 
In a moment, I'll speak with H.H. German, writer-creator of Calico, what may represent the first comic book hero dedicated to fighting animal abuse. The first issue of Calico was recently published, and we'll briefly discuss it with German in a few moments here on Talking Animals on WMNF. Right now, though, we'll step into the con- corner <coughs> Sorry, with one of our longtime faves, Dave Attell, in part of a discussion with Conan O'Brien on Conan's show. This is Dave Attell with a piece called Pets in today's Comedy Corner on Talking Animals on WMNF. I enjoy the zoo. I love I love animals. Uh-huh. Do, do you like animals? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Why not? There's some animals that I think we can, you know, I don't know, like a lizard. Like, that's a big pet now, lizards, you know? For, for those of you who think you might want a lizard as a pet, here's what you should do. Go home, draw eyes on a shoe, and talk to it. All right? <laughs> Not a dynamic pet, no. Not a very, yeah, right there. And, uh, you know, New York City, dogs and cats rule. You yeah, know, really do. sure. And uh, we're the cat people, because we'll talk about you guys first. Yeah. Cat people are great. Uh, I know cats are the gateway pet to hoarding, but I'll tell you. <laughs> no, dogs, uh, you know, like, they're very, very sophisticated now. They, um, in fact... Like, uh, you know, my roommate's dog is on Ambien because he has nightmares. Can you believe that? Yeah. The dog has nightmares. Dog nightmares. It's on Ambien? Yeah. The nightmares? Yeah. Now, I cannot believe, like, a dog would have a nightmare because I think they have a great life. I mean, they don't work, you know? I mean, they just play and eat. I mean, I'm, I'm, like, looking at the dog. He's just yelping and barking and his paws are moving. I'm like, what is it, boy? Is there a ball under a couch in your mind somewhere? <laughs> Was there someone at the door, but they weren't there, and then you thought they were there, and you had to run back and forth? Is that it? <laughs> I never know what to do when you see a dog having a nightmare. No, no, no. Yeah, no, I just, it's not much. I just pull up my pants and leave the room. All right, listen. How to get one in there. I had to try it. I had to. Took it into the gutter, I apologize. You really, you had to do it. You did what you had to do. That was David Tell in today's Comedy Corner with a piece called Pets, taken from one of his appearances with Conan O'Brien on The Conan Show. Now it's time to speak with H.H. German, founder of Sigma Comics and the writer-creator of Calico, a comic book hero dedicated to fighting animal abuse. This is H.H. German on Talking Animals on WNF. Good morning, H.H. Good morning. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm really well. Thanks so much for joining us on Talking Animals. So let's start with maybe give me a brief overview of the H.H. German story. I'm guessing you're a lifelong fan of comic books. Yeah, you could say that. I, I uh, started reading comic books as a, as a kid. My family uh, originally emigrated from the Dominican Republic back mm. in the 60s. Mm. I'm from New York. Grew up in the Bronx. Was born in the Bronx. Spent some time uh both here and abroad growing up and, uh, uh, you know, learning the English language uh, back then, growing up in an Italian neighborhood in the Bronx. Uh, there were things like Sesame Street that you could do, and of course, uh, street talk in, in, in the neighborhood and comic books. So comic books was a very vibrant way for me to improve and increase my uh, my addiction, vernacular, all, all the great words that uh, uh, colorful words that I used uh, uh, as, as my, in a ch- my childhood, you know, my, my, my imagination. So, so. I got gotcha. you. So where along the line did you decide, hey, I'm going to start my own comic book company? Oh, well, this actually started uh, this past year with COVID. Uh, a friend of mine was uh, published by one of the big uh, publishing f- uh, companies and uh, with a novel, and you know, we was very uh, happy for her. And I said, you know, I have an idea that I've been kicking around. Uh, wrote it about four years ago, and it's just an outline. And I started working on it with uh, this quarantine business. And uh, as I wrote it about a week in, I said, this is more like a comic book, you know, the outline. I said, oh, let me, let me try it, uh, an outline for a comic book here. It turned out, it turned into an eight-issue series. 
And uh, that was it. That kicked it off. And now we're, uh, we're, we just finished our first issue. And here's something that maybe reflects someone who's not as steeped in the comic book world as, uh, well, obviously as you are. How did you know when you had this idea uh, and started developing it, how did you know, hey, it's an eight-issue series as opposed to a six-issue series or a ten-issue series? Right. Well, uh, the protagonist definitely lent himself to the comic book format mm-hmm. because he executes his uh, his revenge in segmented uh, ways. So uh, he basically gets, you know, let's call them missions from a network of researchers, yeah. online researchers that he hasn't even met. And on a daily basis, he goes out and, uh, you know, completes these missions. So in that segmented type of uh, pursuit of justice... The comic book format uh, was perfect. Right. No, I guess I just meant that, that within that, how did you say to yourself at a certain point, hey, we've got eight issues here worth of story yeah, as right. opposed to a few. Okay, so, yeah. So the first, uh, the first encounter, really actually the first page uh, of Calico, Calico number one, uh, something pretty traumatic happens. And that is something that really devastates, uh, you know, uh, Hector Gill, who's the protagonist of mm-hmm. uh, Calico. And um, it takes him a while for him to track down these particular individuals. So across eight issues, we're able to understand how he's going about this business and uh, basically completes the circle in issue eight. So I eight gotcha. issues. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when did you start thinking, H.H., uh, about a comic book hero that does fight animal abuse and, and right. why in particular? Right. Well, like I said, I've always been a fan of comic books and they've been seminal to my American story. But about four years ago, I I really had this intense concept of uh, justice for animals. You know, Mm -hmm. we have these comic books for for people, you know, pretty much every superhero saves people, you know, here and there will save an animal. But there's never really been a focus on a comic book centered around preventing and really eliminating uh, animal abuse in a very powerful terminal way. Uh, this is, I have to say, you know, it's a pretty explicit series. It's pretty yeah. violent, not for kids. This is definitely 18 plus. Uh, you know, that that can certainly cause issues. You know, we have detractors, as you, as you can expect, for that reason, which, you know, is understandable. But frankly, uh, animal abuse encompasses violence. And we're not going to shy away from telling the truth and showing what actually happens. And that's why I think uh, this is really resonating with a lot of people who are tired of getting sugar-coated, you know, watered-down messages out there. Yeah, the is first it? issue, which I was fortunate enough to uh, to see, uh, yeah, there's definitely, right, right off the bat, in fact, some pretty explicit uh, animal uh, abuse slash violence that, uh, yeah, not for the screamers, certainly not for kids, as you know. But, but also it establishes yeah. why... Calico probably has the sort of fury and uh, is is going to uh, seek justice in the, in the way that he Absolutely. does. Yeah. He's charged. He's yeah. charged from page one. And you can see the justification. Yeah. Uh, I mean, all you have to do is look at his eyes in in the second page when he's actually when, when the reader discovers that he's actually seeing this on a screen. And then you imagine that he's getting these things every day. Imagine being fueled by that kind of rage and, and you know, wanting to you know, exact justice on these incredibly malignant individuals. You know, um, animal abuse is something that is very devastating, not only to the animals, but to our, our society. You know, it, it, uh, here we are supposed to be this uh, civilized uh, uh, group of people here. We're always evolving and learning new things. And this type of thing is happening. Anytime you, you kill any kind of being on this planet, there's an indirect 
and sometimes direct impact on the biosphere. So yeah. uh, by any definition, regardless of what you think of Calico, he's a hero. Right. Well, so we're just uh, nearing the end of our time here, H.H., so two quick uh, remaining questions. How did you arrive at the name Calico for your uh, hero? Right, so Calico comes from the three colors, the white, mm-hmm. the brown, and the black. Yeah. Our protagonist is Caribbean-American, which encompasses uh, those those great uh, cultures and races. And uh, he's a mixed individual, and, uh, you know, that's the thing. When you come from different backgrounds, you're able to see the world in a different way. Uh, in a very sort of dimension, three-dimensional way, lots of different textures and colors and ideas. You're not locked down to one viewpoint. You you can see different cultures and how they think and how they work and how they live. And there's no better place, frankly, uh, to understand diversity here in this country. In New York City uh, is where this story takes place. For sure. So the lastly, one, can you give us a website or where people could find out more about Calico, where they could get Calico itself? Absolutely. And thanks, Duncan. Really appreciate your support. It's it's Sigma Comics. Dot com. It's S-I-G-M-A, Sigma, comics.com, and you can get uh, digital issues for one ninety nine, and you can get... Uh, we can't, print- sorry, we can't really talk about prices, but sorry, I, I, uh, that's okay. No, I should have, should have alerted you earlier, but, uh, but basically you can go to the website, check it out further. There's all kinds of information, and you can get the comic uh, themselves and, as, and the whole series as it unfolds. So, H.H., thank you so much for joining us on Talking Animals today, and good luck with the, uh, with the comic book, with Calico. I very much appreciate that, Duncan, and congratulations on your show. 18 years, incredible, great stuff. Really, really love what you're doing. For Thank it. you very much. Appreciate it. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'm Duncan Strauss for listening to Talking Animals. Coming up at 11 on WMF, it's Rob Laurie with Radioactivity, followed at noon by Midpoint with Nola Lay. Then at 1 p.m., the music kicks back in with 360 Degrees of Blues, hosted by Harrison Nash, followed by Scott Elliott, and the All Souls edition of It's the Music, which uh, he has some catching up to do. He was... Uh, Sort of cut short last week with the insurrection, but I'm sure he has a great, great show planned in particular today as usual. So right now on this show, it's time for Rename That Animal Tune. We're offering something from the Talking Animals Vault, a book, CD, trinket. The first person who calls 813-239-9663 and correctly identifies this song, which definitely ties into my conversation with Sam Anderson. It's Name That Animal Tune on Talking Animals on WNF. I stand alone in my concrete cell where people stand. All right, we have reached the end of Talking Animals on WMNF Tampa. We'll see you next Wednesday at 11 a.m. Rob Lawyer is up next after NPR News.